Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. I love when we can do the dedications. It's so fun to walk with families and parents in their journey of raising kids. It also is fun to see a church that's busting forth with life. Um, if you've ever went by, gone by our kids' ministry, our toddlers, especially in the preschool, they have a lot of kids over there. So um, that's a good opportunity if you like that age to jump in there and, and volunteer because it is definitely growing and growing uh, of that age. So it's so amazing. Okay, Acts chapter 2. We are in a series called Life After Easter, and the purpose of this is we want to explore what happened after Jesus rose. How did we get to where we are today, where we have this, the greatest, the kind of the largest religious phenomenon in the history of civilization, the growth of Christianity, started on the day when that first Easter morning when Jesus rose. So we've been kind of looking at what happened in the weeks after that. What was the message and what was the mission and and that Jesus was calling his people to. And so today we want to continue with that. As I was thinking this week about the early church and and exploring a little bit about the passage for today, I was remembering back to when I first became a Christian. I was in high school, and I was a baseball player, a basketball player, um, but at this season of my life, I was a skater. So I was into skateboarding, and back in um, when I was in high school in the early 2000s, um, skateboarding, okay, my wife thinks it's funny. Everyone else is like, really? I don't see, do the math. Um, it was a while ago, but uh, skaters kind of, you know, is when you wear like the skull and crossbones on your shoes and pants and all that. It was just the, the vibe that we had. And so that was my uh, kind of my flavor of the year as far as my personality and the way I looked and the people I hung out with. So I became a Christian. I remember uh, one of the first youth group events I ever went to was on a Friday night, and it was a scavenger hunt. And I had some friends who uh, at the church who invited me. I said, okay, Friday night. I've never done that with a church. Let's go see what that's like. And it was one of those scavenger hunts around town where you have a leader who drove you around, and we ended up at the end of the night at somebody's house, and we just watched a movie together. And I remember thinking, like, this is I had a ton of fun, but this is not the way I thought like, you'd plan a Friday night and to have a fun Friday night. But the, other, the thing that I really noticed at that point was coming from where I came from, as far as my, my personality and what I was into, all of a sudden I was meeting all these kids who went to the same high school who were very different than me. In fact, there were some others from other high schools, and there was even, this is, I was thinking about it this week, it was the first time I ever met a homeschool kid. I, up to that point, I didn't even know, like, homeschool kids were a thing, and, and then I went to a youth group event, and there's like, what school do you go to? Oh, I'm homeschooled. I'm like, what does that even mean? Have you, because for me, when you were homeschooled, it meant you got a three-day vacation, and you stayed at home because a principal told you you couldn't come back for three days, and so... But it found out that she was, and that wasn't the reason why. But so all of a sudden, here we were, and there was some jocks hanging out, and a skater, and there was homeschool kids, and there was all this group of people, and we had a blast together. And I realized, you know, in high school, especially back then, in the early 90s, um, that was not something, because there were very defined categories of what you fit into. You were either a jock or maybe you were, remember, rockers? Anyone, you know, tracking with me kind of from my era, you remember? There was just a few. There's also the, um, the kids who were in band. There was the book smart kids. That's the nice way, that's a new way to say it, right? So we had all these different categories of, of students that hung out, and you didn't really ever cross paths because you had your own section where you hung out. Now, all of a sudden, that was blended. 
And I, I was thinking about how the early church was this radical new group of people that was so different than anything that existed before it. All of a sudden, there was, a, there was no division in it between people groups and, and where they came from and, and all of these things. All of a sudden, there's this eclectic group of people that were gathered around a single cause. And it was different than anyone had seen in the ancient world, and it was revolutionary, and sometimes we take it for granted today. And so as we look at the church, and even the church for us today, we are invited in to this this ancient thing that started 2,000 years ago that is the most eclectic, interesting, diverse group of people with one common mission, and that what brings us together is Jesus Christ. And that is what we want to celebrate and look at today. So let's jump in right away to the book of Acts chapter 2. So the book of Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the end of it. And this is after a couple of weeks we saw how Jesus first gave the message, said, hey, you are my uh, witnesses, the way you live your lives, you're witness to not only a future kingdom and, and the transformation of your lives, but you're also witnesses to the current kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord here and today, now, the way you live, and then last week, we kind of saw how the movement, the message of Christianity went to changing your outlook and being baptized into the family, receiving the spirit, and, and now everything is changing among this early group. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 43 is where we want to pick it up today. So that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have a need. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as we look at the story and, and the picture of, of how Acts chapter 2 ends, we get this glimpse of this community of people that was really different. Now, I, I want to just point out a few things. One, they started off and everyone's filled with a sense of awe. They were in awe of the way God was at work and changing lives. It, it, it's this picture of a group of people who come together and just, they're, they're not in awe of the music. They're not in awe of the teaching or of the, the stage or anything. What they were in awe of is what God was up to and how he was at work transforming people. And I think how great would it, is it when we as a church recognize how God is changing lives and it kind of every time makes me stand back and say, Lord, really, you're still at work? You still have the power to change and transform people. Uh, that's why I often talk about it, but I love that our church hosts recovery groups almost every night of the week. Six, six days of the week, there's recovery groups here on campus. One of the reasons I love it, because I often hear stories of how God's at work in people's lives. Sometimes they're not coming to pursue God. They're just looking to be healthy. And, and some are assigned there by a court. And somehow through this, God is getting a hold of lives and hearts. And, and I, I'm in awe at how he moves. And so they, they were gathering together and they were in awe of God was at work. It was different than what they've seen before. It was beyond just a religious experience where you kind of show up at the temple, make your sacrifices, maybe go to synagogue, hear some, some verses that you already knew very well. But it was something deeper was going on. And so they gathered and felt, felt a sense of awe. Uh, what else do we see there? That they were, uh, everyone had everything in common. Now, I want to make a statement about this. So that they were sharing their, possess sharing their possessions, selling them, and meeting needs. Now, side note. Some people have used these couple verses 
to develop a whole theology or a whole set of just kind of ideas of, of the way government should function and stuff like that. There are cults that use these two verses and say, see, this is the picture of what the church is supposed to be. That nobody owns every, anything, that we all have everything in common. Now, I want to caution you, anytime we read scripture, don't ever create your entire theology based on one or two verses. You need to use the whole of scripture, otherwise you can find yourself erring. And if we look at all of scripture, we find Jesus talks about how we should handle our possessions. Paul writes extensively about how we handle our possessions. And what they talk about is let's be people who are generous, generous, not selfish. Let's be people who use what God has blessed us with to benefit others and not always ask how it benefits me. Because human nature, our first inclination is typically, how is this going to help me? What will this do for me? If I contribute and help you here, what's that going to do for me in the future? And so what we have a picture of the early church is they had a heart that was selfless. It was looking at the needs of one another. And we find throughout the New Testament, including the early church, some of them still had possessions. So it wasn't that nobody owned anything. It just they had a heart that was open to say, we're willing to give up what I have for the good of others when the needs arise. And so that was the heart of this church. They were, they were all participating. They had this heart for one another. They were caring for one another. As it goes on, it says they were breaking bread from house to house with sincerity and gladness of heart. Meaning they were, get, when as a, they were in smaller groups. They were, this is where kind of the love for one another took place in the early church. That's why we model ourselves often around life groups or smaller groups, Bible study groups, because they're communities where you can be known better than in a large group. That's what the early church was doing. And then they were praising God and having favor with all people. Notice the response of what happens when they were in awe of what God was doing. When they were sharing life together, they were praising God. Their hearts were turned towards praise of God. And we're going to get back to this in a little bit when we get to our application. But the response was praise. And then notice the result. They were having favor with all the people and numbers were added to them, to them every day. When there's a community of people who are being transformed by Jesus and living out the kingdom of God among each other, it's a compelling thing. And we find that lives were being transformed and changed every day because of what they saw in this kingdom or in this new family. So that's kind of the ideal that we see here in the early church. It was life in the early church was life shared with one another and life shared with others. It, it was very different. It became a very... Uh, no longer a self-focused thing. And, and again, that's a radical change for some of us, is it not? Uh, my wife is the uh, volunteer coordinator down at uh, the Community Resource Center. And even yesterday, they had a big event, and she was, uh, they had a bunch of volunteers. And even said there's a group, um, a lot of volunteers are there just selflessly serving. But there's always some who are there because they, have to, they get signed up to be there, maybe by their parents, because it will look good on their college application. Right? So you go to serve someone else to do something good as long as it benefits you ultimately in the end. But that's our human nature. And so, we, what, so as we look at the early church, the question is, why were they different? Why did this first group of Christians function so differently? What was it that allowed them to be selfless? What was it that allowed them to love one another? What was it that allowed them to have favor 
with others who are outside of their gathering. We want to explore that a little bit here today. And I want to start off by just saying the difference was they were now this new global family called the Bride of Christ. Now that sounds kind of funny if you haven't heard that before. Bride of Christ, what are you talking about? But we find that Jesus actually describes the church, that is the people who say we're loyal to Jesus, we, we cl- proclaim him as Lord, we are included as the church. And Jesus refers to us as his bride. In fact, in, in one of his uh, analogies, one of his parables, he talks about it's the kingdom of God is like a, a person who is betrothed to be married, who goes away to prepare a place for his bride and will come back again to get him. And this is in first century Judaism. That's exactly what you would do, is if I were engaged to somebody, I would pay an endowment to their family, essentially to then have the rights to invite that new person into a new family. And, and when I paid the price for my bride, I would go away while we're engaged. I would go away and prepare a place, usually in, the, in your father's house, you would add a room onto that. Aren't we glad we're no longer first century? So, but you'd go and add onto your, your parents' house or somewhere on their land. When that house was prepared and completed, you would go back to your bride and say, I've already paid the price, so now come and live in your new family. And that's the picture that was given for the church. Jesus basically pays the price for his church and, and is preparing an ultimate place for us that we call heaven. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, in a section that Paul's talking about marriage, he actually then says, Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ, Jesus Christ paid the price, paid the endowment for his people. He gave himself up for his people, that we can have a new community. So one of the reasons why the church functioned differently is because they were this new community bought by Christ, and it, it broke down all the old barriers. I just heard this last week, someone said it this way, I loved it, was the early church saw this and they wanted to care for the very thing that Jesus died for. That they cared for the thing that he died for. So why was the early church different? Because they were caring for what Christ just died for, the church. They loved it. They loved people. Why? Christ just died for them. And you, how relevant would that be when you're talking seven, eight weeks after the resurrection, That's pretty fresh on your mind, is it not? To think, oh, remember last month when Jesus died for these people? Don't you think we should respond differently now to them? And so they now were caring for the thing that Christ died for and gave himself up for. So it's now this new global community. Now, what was different about that new global community? What are some distinctions? I want to point you to Galatians chapter 3, and I have this on the screen for you. Because we'll find one of the distinctions of this new global community is that there was a breakdown of walls that previously divided. Galatians 3.26 says this, You are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. Again, baptism was this idea we looked at a little bit last week of identifying with a new family. And so it was, hey, we are now part of something new, being clothed clothed with Christ. In the Roman Empire, uh, when, you, when a man came of age, they would be given a new robe. They'd be clothed in the family's robe and now had all rights to the inheritance of the family. They could now receive as an adult. So Paul is using the same language here. saying so you've been clothed in Christ. You have a new family and you share with that inheritance. 
And he said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So Paul says, when we look at the church and the early church and how they function, one thing that was different was in Christ, we now all belong to him. And it was, there was no more distinction that would keep you in or out. He said, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And what he meant by that is those lines, he didn't say there's no longer any distinctions, but those distinctions aren't which qual- are no longer what qualify you to be in this family. And there's this radical new idea that took place. In fact, in the Roman uh, government, there were philosophers in first century that talked about what would utopia look like. And, and they had this idea they called cosmopolitanism. And it was essentially, there was no, uh, it didn't matter what race you were, it didn't matter your economic status, and it didn't matter your gender, that you could be a part of this new utopia. And that was like philosophers' highest ideal, that they said, wouldn't that be like this great world? And everyone else kind of thought like, yeah, maybe, but that will never happen. But then Jesus comes along and Paul's teaching and says, because of what Christ has done, your economic status doesn't keep you in, it doesn't keep you out. The race that you were born into doesn't qualify you to be in this family or keep you out of this family. Your gender no longer keeps you in or keeps you out. That in Christ, that it's what keeps, gets us in and out is what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And so now there's this collection of people that looked radically different than any others. I wanna take just a moment because it's Mother's Day to just talk about that one male and female issue for just a moment. Do you know the early church was actually the most progressive you could ever imagine when it came to women's rights? At their time, their, their ideas were completely radical. We find not only the inclusion of women, uh, we find that women were highly valued and they were involved in all kinds of levels of, of leadership. Even in Romans chapter 16, Paul, at the end of it, Paul is mentioning and thanking all these people and saying, greet these people, greet these people. Well, he mentions five or six women in there. Some of the names are kind of confusing. The scholars like, could be a man, could be a woman. Um, but five or six of them are specifically mentioned women who are leaders in their church. One is listed as a fellow prisoner and apostle. One is listed as, as someone who is martyred. We have, we have those who serve the church. We know that in uh, Philippi, the first convert was a, a businesswoman named Lydia. She converts to Christianity and apparently begins a house church at her house. It was, so we have this early church movement where women, for the first time, were highly valued and highly respected. And that uh, actually became a struggle for the Christians for the first couple centuries where then there was others who were saying, wait, culturally this is so different than it kind of, people culturally started trying to reverse all of that. And, and so it's kind of fascinating in here, but we find in Christ, those distinctions were broken down. In Christ, the, the racial distinctions were broken down to a Jewish person to say, hey, you can be in the family of God and so can this non-Jew. That was radical. In the Roman government, there was a lot of different races, but they wouldn't say, oh yeah, we're one and the same. It took many, many years for the Roman government to realize that if they didn't use indigenous people in their armies and, and in their leadership, that they weren't going to effectively rule. It took them a long time because they thought only Romans can truly rule. Only Romans can truly serve as the elite soldiers. But Christianity broke those walls down. And said, in Christ, 
what he has done. That is what we rally around. So the early church was radically different as this global family. One, because those dividing lines were gone. The other thing that was radically different in this global family was that they had a shared mission. They had this shared mission. I want to point you to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 says this, Behold, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now notice this language. This is written to the church, to the Christians. These are people who are from different races. These are people from different backgrounds. He says, no, you are now a royal priesthood, a holy nation together. You're God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we see that this first church had this shared identity and a shared mission. They were a royal priesthood. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone told me I'm part of a priesthood, I'd think, I'd have no idea what that means. Do I have to walk around in a robe? What does that look like? And, And this is the idea that a priest was the one who had access to God. And a priest was the one who could help someone else connect with God. You would go to the priest, and the priest could pray for you. The priest could kind of uh, pray on your behalf. But now it's saying, no, as Christians, we're bringing the actual presence of God with us to all people. A royal priesthood means we're part of introducing everyone to God. It's not just some elite group of people. We're all included in this. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Under the law, under the old ways of doing things, you had to perfectly obey to receive mercy. But now, said in Christ, we receive mercy. This community is different now. The message to us is different now. We have a shared mission and no dividing lines. So if this is what the early church looked like, if it was this global community, it was this family that was this picture of all tribes and tongues and nations, which, by the way, is the picture in Revelation in chapter 7, verse 9, for example. It talks about what the church looks like when we're in heaven. It says every tongue and tribe and nation race is there praising God and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. So if we're a picture of that, of the world to come, and there's no longer these distinctions that divide us or keep us in or out, if we have a shared mission, what does that mean for us as a church today? And I want to kind of go back to Acts chapter 2 to just share a few thoughts. If the early church was willing to care for what Jesus died for, I noticed a few things they did. The first thing this, when we looked at that they were sharing and they were taking care of one another, meeting each other's needs, I noticed that this is a church of contributors. It's a church where everyone is part of being contributors. The other part of that is they weren't a church of consumers. Now, I want to say, I believe Seacoast Church is pretty good at being a church of contributors, not consumers. When we have a consumer mentality, we come and we worship together and we leave and answer questions in our minds like, did I like the worship today? Was the music too loud or too quiet, too fast or too slow? Was the sermon funny enough? Did he t- talk too long? Did it, you know, when we're consumers, we start thinking all of those things. I would actually say, at least from my impression and what my interactions, that we're in general not that kind of church. But the early church, the way you fight against that is be a church of contributors. We're investing. We re- recognize it's not all about us. It's not about what we want. 
I remember one time I was guest teaching at another church, and um, I may have shared this a while ago, uh, but when I was leaving, it was, so I, I spoke, and it, the sermon was awesome. I mean, it was so good. It was, it was changing lives. And, and uh, when the service was over, I'd stand in the back, and that was their tradition, and shake everyone's hand as they come out, and they all say, oh, good sermon, pastor. Um, and one guy got to me, and he shook my hand, and he looked me in the eyes and started squeezing my hand. And he kept going harder and harder, and he said, and I said, oh, good to meet you. And then he started squeezing, he looked me in the eyes, and he said, don't you ever preach the word of God again without wearing a tie. <laughs> and I just looked at him like, thanks for the input. <laughs> and he kind of moved on. And I was just thinking, wow, the whole message even of the morning was forgiveness, and his point was I didn't hear a word you said because you're not wearing a tie. You know, when we're a church of consumers and saying, how does this make me feel better and not contributors, we totally miss the point. We use a phrase last week, when our hands stay busy, our hearts stay soft. When we're involved in serving others, we have a softness. We're open to what God is doing. So I want to invite us as a church to be a church of contributors. How are you contributing? How are you jumping in? How are you joining in the mission of God? Let's be a church of contributors. The other part is this, that I look at the early church is everyone was in awe, and at the end of this, it said that they were praising God. They were praising God. What would it be like? There's a, a book by Francis Chan. He kind of talks about uh, letters to the church, and in it, he has this phrase when they, when they first planted one of the churches he led. He said, what would it be like if our church, when we praised God, we actually sang as if we were singing to God? Now, that sounds, you're like, well, isn't that what we're doing? Are we? Are we always doing that? Are we always singing as if we're singing to God, or are we just singing? And we all have different levels of how much, you know, how we express ourselves, and that's okay. But what if our posture in that moment was, God, we're, we want to see you. We want to be grateful for who you are. We acknowledge what you've done. And when we praise through our worship, through our prayers, even through our encouragement with one another, it's as if it is to you, not to the person singing or the person next to me. We want to respond to you. What would that be like? And the final part of this that I love is that they were finding favor with all people. And again, it's deeply at the heart of Seacoast that we are a church that loves our community. We love our city. Because we believe that as we're transformed and we're functioning as a church together, that that is very compelling to the world around us. It is very compelling. It has a power to change and shape lives. Even just last week, I, I mentioned I play basketball in a local gym and I was hanging out with one of the guys who's a new father and he has another kid on the way and I just started sharing about just some ideas for um, parenting and, I, and he didn't ask. I told him, I go, I'm giving you unsolicited pastoral advice now. <laughs> but it was really cool, the conversation that it opened up and he said, oh, that sounds like, that makes sense that that works. And he, that didn't come from my first conversation with him. That came over years of playing together and building a rapport and not yelling at him when he fouls me all the time. And it came from responding in a different way and gaining, earning favor. And so as we live as Christ lived among people, we, earn, we gain favor with the world and they are open to hearing about Jesus, the one who truly brings life.
I want to invite the worship team to make their way back up. And uh, we're going to, in just a moment, we're going to sing one more song, and then we actually have a baptism. We had a few in the early service. We have one in this one uh, that we're going to celebrate um, here. But for us, all of this is the child dedications, the baptisms, all of these things are a celebration that God is still in the business of changing and shaping lives. It's an outward display of the fact that we're part of this global community called the Bride of Christ, where all these divisions are gone now. And what Christ has done is the great unifier for you and for me. And I believe that what God's calling us to as a community, as a church, is that he wants us to be a picture of this church. Contributors in awe of God, praising him, finding favor with all the people, and seeing his name made known. And so even as we go into baptism in just a moment, baptism for us is a, is a reminder. It's an outward display of what Christ has done on the inside. And so as we celebrate that, we're celebrating, we're standing in awe of God that he is changing lives and he's expanding his kingdom. So we invite you to celebrate with us with that. And I want to invite you to stand here as we sing this final song. Um, after the song, we will do our baptism and continue on with our mourning. But pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for the picture of the early church, that there's this collection of people that was radically different than anything before. And it's because of what you have done. It wasn't based on the status of anybody, what they could earn or what they were born into. It was a people that were bought with your death and resurrection. So God, this morning as we respond to you, we respond to a God in whom we are in awe and whom we owe all things. So we thank you and give you this time. Amen.